day, we didn't have any sound in the last. It was an awesome video, wasn't it? I had to wake everybody up. Number two, everybody's usually still half asleep, so they don't know what the heck's going on anyway. So, but here we are. <clears throat> I love movies. I particularly love movies that teach something of uh, virtues, you know, things like bravery and integrity and honor. One of my favorite movies of all time is Braveheart. And this is, in this particular scene that we're about to see, it describes what I want to talk with you about today. Check it out. Much as you and your captains hail from a region long known to support the value of Japan, may we invite you to continue your support and uphold our rightful thing. Down the field, now is the time to declare a king. And you're prepared to recognize our legitimate succession. You're the ones who want support the rightful Those who lives may be possible to have a right to do. recognition of any documents. position exists to provide those people with freedom. And I go to make sure that they have it. Gotta love a preacher who leads with brave heart, man, seriously. <laughs> I happen to believe that um, human beings have been settling for, as Wallace described it earlier, um, scraps for a very long time. In our search for happiness, in our search for significance, for contentment, we look for things that we believe will bring those to us and bring us the things that we crave most. We count money and power and control as tokens of influence and contentment. But in reality, these things are the scraps of life that when attained are seen for what they really are. Scraps. Several years ago, 
Carol and I served at a large suburban church in the Western Hills of Pittsburgh. I was a director of discipleship, and Carol served as a lay leader in the kids' ministry. And as you might expect, just like here in a suburban setting, there are well-educated people, people who had some pretty heady jobs with both large and small companies. And I can't tell you how many times I've had people in that setting approach me and ask me what I like to call the $64,000 question. You ready for it? Here it is. Is this all there is? I mean, I've reached the pinnacle of what I've wanted to be. I've achieved all of my goals. I've done all of the things that society and culture tells me are the things that I should achieve or seek to strive to achieve. I'm making money. I've got a great family. I've got a great career. Everything I've ever aspired to. So tell me, preacher, why do I feel so empty? I can give you the short answer. And we'll expound on it a little bit today. Well, it's because they were looking for something in places where they would never find what they were truly looking for. They were looking for happiness and contentment and significance and purpose. And isn't isn't that really what the epic life is all about? The thing that we desire at the end of it all, a life that is full of meaning and true fulfillment, a life that is lived out, to its redemptive potential, where you end it all and you hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, today we're continuing our series, Christian Atheist, with a message titled, When You Believe in God But Pursue Happiness at Any Cost. There's a story in the New Testament that I believe illustrates what I'm talking about. Many of you have heard it. It's the story of the rich young ruler that's located in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to take a look at chapter 10. You'll find it on the top of your message outline. Now, I'll just say this. If you didn't get one when you walked in a door, raise your hand. Pastor Anson will be sure to get one to you. You're going to want to take notes on this. There's some good stuff here. Looks like everybody's ready to go. Awesome. Wait, there's a gentleman over here, Anson. Okay, you'll find this on the top of the message outline. Follow along with me as I read to you. This comes to, comes to us from Mark chapter 10, from the English Standard Version of the Bible. As he was setting out on his journey, talking about Jesus, of course, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's an interesting question in and of itself. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've done all these things and kept them from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, two key words here, man, this sets up the whole, this sets up the whole passage. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Let's talk about this for a few minutes. Now, my guess is many, if not most of you are familiar with this story. Even folks that aren't necessarily followers of Jesus have heard this. And everybody has a bunch of different takes on it. One of the most common takes on it 
is that you read this, you look at it, and you say to yourself, Jesus hates rich guys. The only way you get into heaven is to not be rich. And if you are rich, give away all your stuff, and then you can get into heaven. That's not it. Not even close. Not even in the same wavelength. What Jesus is basically saying here, in this case, is you're putting, you're putting all your trust in something that can do nothing for you other than take care of what you're doing right now. Here's a guy who, and mind you, back in the day of, of, of Jesus, back in ancient Palestine, there was no middle class, okay? There was, you didn't, they, you didn't have upward mobility. What you were born into is what you stayed pretty much till the day you died. So this guy had money from the start. He inherited it. He got it the really old-fashioned way. So all of his life, this guy has had money, he's had power, he's been able to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, when he walks across the street, people move, they listen to him. Everything that you would say and sit back and think, wow, this guy's got it made. And yet here he is. He shows up to Jesus and he says, what, what do I need to do to gain an e eternal life? What must I do? And, and, and Jesus looked at him. And here's where the key phrase comes into this thing. Is that Jesus looked at him, loved him. And I think he said this, and, and, and Mark the writer said this because Jesus looked at him and said, this guy's serious. This isn't some guy that's just coming up asking for the Sunday school answers. This is a guy who wants to know. What must I do to inherit eternal life? My guess is the way this guy reacted after Jesus gave him the Sunday school answer, basically quoting the Ten Commandments, he said, I've done all those things. And I still have this empty hole inside of me. What must I do? And Jesus looked at him and said, hmm. Okay. And he said, give it all away. He said, because this stuff has hold of you. You don't have hold of it. And you see, that to me is the main thing about this passage. Is that so much about life, so much about everything that we do, is about does it hold us or do we hold it? I have friends of mine that, that, that have their own businesses. And I mean, in the old adage, goes, 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 is, I believe holds true. You don't own the business. The business owns you. My guess is if there's some entrepreneurs in here, you can relate to it completely. And what Jesus is saying is, is you've got that 180 degrees out of phase. And you need to fix that. Jesus loved this guy, this, this rich guy. He loved this guy enough to tell him that what he was running after were scraps that were unworthy of the time that he was putting into them. He goes on to tell him that he should let them go and spend the rest of his time seeking things that are eternal in nature. That, and that by following him, he can find these eternal things that will ultimately satisfy his soul. However, this guy couldn't see that. He was holding on to his possessions and power and prestige so tightly that they were, in fact, actually grasping him. They were laying hold of him. They had him in bondage. And they were keeping him from attaining his God destiny, what he was created to be and what he was created to do. And I believe 
I believe, that this made Jesus very sad when he walked away from him, dejected and still enslaved to himself. Rhetorical question for all of you. Can you relate to any of this? How many here are in the grip of what we have? Or at least what we think we have? Enslaved by our own possessions or prestige, afraid to let it go and really, really reach for life's brass ring. Enamored and enslaved by the scraps of life. C.S. Lewis talks about how God must feel as he sees us settling for the scraps when the epic life for which we were created lies just within our reach. Listen to what he had to say. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So, how do we find contentment? How do we begin to look beyond everything that we've been taught? There are three things that, uh, that I want us to consider from this passage that will help get us started along the path to true contentment, along the, the path to committing our lives to something that's actually worth committing it to. Allow me to share them with you. Okay, first, number one, write this down. There's more to life than what you can see or feel. I think our friend, the rich young ruler, was having a hard time coming to grips with this. Listen again to the second half of verse 17. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, like so many of us, he was looking for something to do. He was looking for the quick and dirty. He was looking for the simple. He was hoping there was something he could do, maybe a book he could read, or perhaps a program that he could follow that would bring the eternal contentment that he so craved. You see, he's living inside of himself. Therefore, he's constrained by the limitations of his own human frailty. To him, anything beyond the ability to, to consider the five senses is unthinkable. Because that is how he has measured his success. It's, it's, it's how he rates himself. And at the end of it all, when he accomplished all that he can, when he has consumed all that he can, he's left asking this question, what else must I do? And he looked, at, and this is the ironic thing about the whole thing, he was looking in the face of the one who created him when he asked this question, and the one who knew every little thing about him as he asked it, and when he received the answer, the thing he was seeking after, an answer to this, and he got it, he walks away, and he walks away sadly disenchanted because he wasn't prepared to think or live outside of the box that he and the culture that he lived in had created for himself. But he's not the only one. In the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, the writer faced very much the same dilemma. Here was a man who was considered the wisest who ever lived, a man named Solomon, the son of the great King David. And at the beginning of his book, he lays out his pursuit of 
answering the most vexing questions of life and how to find significance and contentment. And he, here was Solomon. He had, he had acquired wealth beyond measure. He worked hard. He ate the best food, drank the finest wine, married the most beautiful women. He surrounded himself with the greatest artisans and musicians so that he could constantly be in the presence of excellence. And he went on to say that he held nothing from himself, that he partook of everything that he possibly could, trying to reach for that brass ring called contentment and significance. And here's what he had to say about it. Then I took a good look at everything I'd done. I looked at all of the sweat and hard work. But when I looked, I saw nothing but smoke. Smoke and spitting into the wind. There was nothing to any of it. Nothing. You see, Solomon at this point in his life simply couldn't see outside of himself. Let's move it forward a couple thousand years. Howard Hughes, one of the great entrepreneurs and innovators of the 20th century in film, aviation, and many other fields. He was really quite brilliant. He was married several times, <clears throat> excuse me, often to the most beautiful Hollywood starlets. He amassed a fortune of over a billion dollars, and that was back in the day when a billion was a lot of money. He had a reputation as a risk taker and as a bit of an eccentric. And yet at the end of it all, he died with his billions as a recluse and as a junkie, with his hair and his beard growed down to his waist, living out his last days basically watching his fingernails grow. You see, he just didn't get it. So, if seeking to fulfill ourselves isn't the path to happiness and contentment, what is? Well, number two, write this down, please. Contentment requires that we live life beyond ourselves. In the runaway bestseller, The Purpose Driven Life, author and pastor Rick Warren says in chapter one, sentence one, it's not about you. Jesus pretty much said that to our buddy, the rich young ruler, when he put it this way, and Jesus looking at him loved him. In fact, he loved him enough to tell him the truth, to be honest with him. Loved him, and he said, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. He was calling the rich young ruler to simplify, to unclutter, if you will, his life. Jesus is teaching him and us a very valuable kingdom principle here. Let, let me juxtapose it like this, okay? I graduated personally, my, me, I graduated college with a degree in business. I had a major in economics, a minor in finance, and in quantitative methods. When I was in school, I had some friends of mine who aspired to be accountants. For the life of me, I'll never know why. And here's what they used to say with regards to taxes. They would say, it's not what you make that matters, it's what you get to keep. Sage advice when it comes to investing in this world. However, in the kingdom that Jesus talks about, the kingdom of God, there's a twist added. The quantity and quality of what you get to keep is directly related to, dependent upon, in fact, the quantity and quality of what you give away. You see, the life that Jesus describes, the one that leads to ultimate contentment and fulfillment, excuse me, the one that he gave his life for, is marked by living a life, by holding what you have with open hands. 
allowing God to take from one open hand in one minute and give back in overflowing proportions in the very next. It's about being a conduit of the blessing and grace that God has given you and that you have received to the people around you, not concerning yourself with what you have as opposed to what you can give away. And it's amazing how looking at life and living this way can simplify it. It causes you to be much more present-oriented as opposed to living life out in the future someplace, someplace where you're not even sure or, or you aren't even sure is actually going to happen. Bill Gates is the founder of Microsoft and is, by all counts, one of the richest men in the world, close to $100 billion in assets. Now, you would think that he would be content to live out the rest of his life, the rest of his days, living off the wealth that he had created and accumulated, but such is not the case. Some years ago, Gates and his wife, Melinda, began a foundation named after themselves that is committed to giving away his fortune. They have committed themselves to using their money to finding cures for dreaded diseases and otherwise seeking to bring some comfort to those who have been afflicted around the world. It's an ambitious plan, but they've committed themselves to it. And in 2006, Gates retired from Microsoft so that he can devote his whole energy to running this foundation. Now, those of you who have followed the career of Gates or know a little something about it would, would tell you that his stepping down from the helm of the company that he started is a really, really big deal because he was known as a hands-on guy when it came to running his business. If I can translate that for you, what hands-on in this case means is, in rich guy speak, is that Bill Gates was a control freak. So those of us who fit into that category, and you know who you are, would understand the significance of this move. In fact, it was so impressive that another super-rich guy named Warren Buffett committed to giving his fortune to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which at the time was around $30 billion. Now, I've recently seen pictures of, of Gates, and since he's made this move, and he, he seems different, seems content. You see, he gave up striving for himself and committed to giving of himself. Now, I don't know whether Gates or Buffett or any of those guys are followers of Jesus, but I do know that when Jesus' principles are followed, good things tend to happen. Jesus describes this kingdom way of life in what I believe to be the most profound discourse ever uttered by a human being, and that would be the Sermon on the Mount. He addresses what we're talking about here in a passage from Matthew 6, a familiar passage for many of us. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. You see, I think what Jesus is saying, if you look at it in the context of the rest of the passage before it, what Jesus is basically saying is, is that the problem with humanity, as it currently is, when he was living, and I would submit to you currently is as we are living, and if things continue to go on, we'll continue to be 10 times 10,000 years from now, is that we worry about things that we have absolutely zero control over. One of the things that Jesus talked about before this passage was he said, you know, consider the lilies of the field. 
you know, they neither soil nor, you know, or, or, or toil nor reap, yet all, Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed as one of these. What he's saying is that, he's saying, first off, you know, consider that, but also consider what he's also saying, I believe, is, is no, really, consider the lilies of the fields. In other words, slow down. Look at what's in front of you. You see, I don't know about you, but I spent, I spent a lot of my time, in, especially in the business world, but honestly, even as a pastor, I spent a lot of my time looking at what's going to happen tomorrow and what's going to happen next week and what's going to happen next month and what's going to happen next year and what's your strategic plan? What are you going to be doing three to five years from now? And I took this stuff seriously. I really did. And to some degree, I still do now. But what Jesus is saying here is that you have zero control over that, man. Zero. What you need to worry about is what's going on right now because that's all you're guaranteed. And what I think is happening as I look back over my life, and I think if all of us are honest here, we could look back and say the same thing about our own, is that God was at work in the things that we were doing at the present moment, and we missed it because we were out here someplace. We were thinking a year ahead, or a month ahead, or a day ahead. And what God, Jesus is saying here is, is God's at work in your life right now with the things that are going on around you and the people that are around you, and they need you. And you have wisdom and truth and love to speak into their lives, but you're so consumed with this stuff, so consumed with the striving and all of this, that you're missing my working in your very presence. And we had to quit doing that. You want to make a difference in the world you live in? Seriously. You want to make a difference where you work? At home? with your family, whatever the case may be, be present. I, I can tell you this, and my wife would back me up on this. Probably the last two or three years that I was at Legacy, uh, every Sunday I, I found a way to work in with the, my congregation and the people that I, that I worked with is I tried to work in the fact that you need to be present for the people in your life. Be there. Dan and I were having a conversation before, before church, and I, I, I told him, I said, you know what? When my kids were little, I was consumed with going to school. And I missed stuff. And I made a vow to myself that I wasn't going to miss that for my grandkids. That's why you keep seeing my face here every few weeks. I'm not missing that. Not again. That's where it's at. It's being with, being with I mean really with, and being there for the people around you. That's what Jesus says. Slow down. Just slow down. Don't worry. And that's what he was telling the rich guy. Give away your stuff. It's consuming you. It's keeping you from doing the stuff that you really want to do, which is to live a fulfilled life. And you do that by giving yourself and pouring yourself out for the people around you. All right, let's land this plane. Final point, number three. Please write this down. True contentment comes through a relationship with God. Actually, true contentment begins with a relationship with God. Jesus understood this, and he shared it with the rich young ruler. In the second part of verse 21, four words, and come follow me. Come, slow down, unclutter your life, and come follow me. The key to true happiness, to true contentment, is a relationship with God through Jesus of Nazareth. You see, 
The one thing we were created for was to be in a relationship with God. And when the first human beings were given the, the choice as to whether to follow God and remain in a relationship with Him or go on their own with a false sense of control, they, of course, chose the latter. And at that moment, that very moment, the die for all of humanity was cast. But God did not give up on us in that He provided a way for us to be restored to Him, to have our relationship with Him through Christ restored through his life, death, and resurrection. By what he did, the debt for our rebellion towards God is paid in full, and he offers it to us as a free gift. And we call that gift the gift of grace. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul describes it best, I believe, in verses 20 and 21. I'm going to read to you from the New Living Translation. Take a listen. He says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. People had that 180 degrees out of phase. They believed that, well, I'm going to follow this. And what God was saying is, I'm going to give you this law to show you that you can't. Okay? You can't. So quit trying. Well, don't quit trying. But you know what I mean. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the most important thing that we need to understand concerning grace. There is nothing, and I mean nothing in this world, that we can do to earn it. But when we accept it, and surrender our lives to him. He restores our broken relationship with him and promises us a transformed life full of significance and purpose. Significance and purpose that only the creator of the universe can give you. You see, for many of us, the discontent we feel is simply our souls longing for that broken relationship with God to be restored. It's what's been called by theologians the God-shaped void. And understand something. There is nothing besides a relationship with God that can fill that God-shaped void. No amount of money, no amount of power, no amount of influence, no job or career or human relationship can fill that void. Only a relationship with God. St. Augustine put it best when he said this. He said, you have made yourself or you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. What Augustine is saying is that we can strive all we want, but we're still going to be discontent. The only time, and, and, and it's by design for heaven's sakes. God designed it this way. He designed it so that the only fulfillment we can have is through him. He made us that way. And the only way we can find it, the only way that we can find rest is through a relationship with God through Jesus of Nazareth. I don't care where you are in your spiritual walk. If you walked in this place for the very first time today, and maybe this is the first time you've ever heard the name Jesus, I don't know. But understand something. Today is a day where you can say, you know what? I want to get on that path. I want to discover what it is that God, the creator of the universe, the one who set the whole thing into motion, the one who spoke the words and it happened. I want to discover what he has for me. Because what I've done up to this point isn't getting it done. 
I want to find that out today. And if you've been a follower of Christ since forever, but there's still parts of your life that you haven't given up, that you're still striving for, that you're still trying to fulfill on your own, give it up, man. Let him do it. Start to live your life on a daily basis. Be present for the people around you. Make a difference. Speak truth and love into their lives. Speak life. But you can't do it if you don't hear it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we ask you to fill that void in our hearts. Whether it's a huge void because maybe this is the first time we've ever considered it or it's a little bit smaller void because we've let you in but we haven't let you fully in. But Lord, today is the day, today is the day that we're going to go all in. And God, my deepest prayer at this moment for the people in this place today, for maybe the people that are here in this, is that today will be the day that they surrender their lives to you, either for the first time or surrender the rest of what they've given you. Understanding and knowing that it's not going to be easy and a lot of it's not going to make any sense, but that we have to do what we talked about last week, and that is trust you Trust that you have our best interest at heart. Trust that you know what you're doing. And trust that you have that epic life, that, that God destiny for us individually. Not that just you are able, but that you are willing to fulfill that in our lives. Lord, I pray that each person in this place today considers that and takes this moment, this holy moment, to consider and make that decision to follow you fully and completely. We thank you for your presence in this place today. We honor you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.